Welcome to the TSO Podcast. I'm Kathleen Kajioka from the New Classical FM. Brahms was constantly trying to get him to move to the big city, thinking you could never be a successful composer unless you lived in Vienna, the big city. But Dvorak refused, and his desire to remain Czech shows up in the tiniest ways. That's music expert Rob Capolo. You'll hear from him later in the show. But first, Shostakovich's Symphony No. 13 has been called a few things since its premiere in 1962. A song cycle, a tribute, a choral symphony. It's also been called controversial. The symphony is Shostakovich's setting of poems by Russian writer Yevgeny Yevtushenko. It was written about the World War II massacre that took place at Babi Yar, a ravine in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. It was there that tens of thousands of Jews were killed during the two-day massacre. But on the day of the premiere, the government intervened and demanded Yevtushenko publish a second version of his poetry that was more amenable to Soviet authorities. This coming Friday and Sunday, you'll be able to hear the symphony in its original form when it's performed by the Toronto Symphony Orchestra under the baton of Andrei Boyeko. TSO Managing Editor and Musicologist Hannah Chan Hartley joins us now. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thanks. So why was Yevtushenko pressured to write a second version of the poems? What was wrong with the first one in the Soviet view? All right. So on the um, the first poem that Yevtushenko wrote was actually inspired, obviously, by the massacre. He had, he had gone to the ravine and realized there was no memorial there to um, commemorate the, the massacre of the Jews. And this really incensed him. And he decided to write this poem in order to bring the whole event to light. Uh, they're not quite sure how many people died, maybe up to 100,000 in all. And two years after the massacre happened, the Germans came back and uh, basically wanted to cover up what happened. So they dug up the bodies, they burnt them, basically destroyed any evidence. But it was also coming to light at this time that there might have been native Ukrainians who were involved, whether they were forced to collaborate with the Nazis or willingly collaborated, nobody really knows. So, of course, it was in everyone's interest to keep this, you know, right. below the surface. Right. And uh, Yevtushenko, knowing this, was was basically upset by this and, and wrote this poem to say, oh, look, it, the, the Soviet government seems to also be not acknowledging this Nazi massacre. And he, he wanted to highlight this um, potential and anti-Semitic view of the government at the time. So after the pressure from the government around the premiere of the symphony, Yevtushenko rewrites the poem. Mm-hmm. What are the big differences in his rewrite between the original, his sort of original intent and then what, what he resubmitted? So it's actually only a couple of lines, but in those lines, he does mention the Russians and the Ukrainians who also suffered throughout the massacre, whether, um, I don't think he references their participation in this, but he he makes it known that everybody suffered during this massacre. I'm wondering why Shostakovich, knowing the nature of this government and the sometimes fatal consequences of contravening it, why he would take the risk of setting this work? All right. So actually, I th- there I have a quote here um, uh, by Shostakovich. It's from his memoirs. Um, they're not authenticated, yeah. but he did he did leave this uh, quote about his views on anti-Semitism. He said, "I often test a person by his attitude towards the Jews. In our day and age, any person with pretensions of decency cannot be anti-Semitic. The Jews are a symbol for me. All of man's defenselessness is concentrated in them." 
After the war, I tried to convey that feeling in my music. It was a bad time for Jews then. In fact, it is always a bad time for them. We must never forget about the dangers of anti-Semitism and keep reminding others of it because the infection is alive and who knows if it will ever disappear. That's why I was overjoyed when I read Yevtushenko's Babi Yar. The poem astounded me. They tried to destroy the memory of Babi Yar, first the Germans and then the Ukrainian government. But after Yevtushenko's poem, it became clear that it would never be forgotten. That is the power of art. People knew about Babi Yar before the poem, but they were silent. But when they read the poem, the silence was broken. He in, and he basically decided to to write that write the music to it. Hmm. So what's the change that Yevtushenko makes? What's the difference with the second set of poems? So it's only the first, it's only Babi Yar that's affected, and it's just a couple of lines referring, uh, making sure to um, refer to the Russians and Ukrainians that were that were also part, maybe part of this or involved, but everyone had suffered during the war. Um, I've read that Shostakovich did not actually, was not happy with the fact that Yevtushenko was was pressured to do this, and he, he didn't want to change the music. It turned out he did not need to change the music, and the, the music actually stayed the same, even though the the, the second set of poems were published um, in a different form. Yeah. So in performing this with Maestro Boryeko, we'll be performing the first version of Baba Yar. Right, the, the original. The original. Version. Yes. Um, Knowing the context, obviously the the you know the deep uh, and despair of of all of the history behind it. What else is unique about this TS perf- TSO performance? Well, I think it's actually the first time the TSOs ever performed Shostakovich thirteen. Um, it will involve a a male chorus. It's mm-hmm. actually the the men from the Amadeus Choir and the Elmer Eisler Singers. They will be singing in the in the Russian text. We'll also have a Russian bass soloist. Well, thanks so much for telling us about it. Thank you. you. That was TSO Managing Editor and Musicologist Hannah Chan Hartley discussing Shostakovich's Symphony No. 13. You're listening to the TSO Podcast. Stay with us. Dvorak composed his Symphony No. 8 in 1889. It's one of his best-loved works owing to its cheerful, buoyant quality. What makes it so great? We recently asked music expert Rob Capolo, and here's what he said. Take a listen. At the very beginning, there's this wonderfully simple flute melody. Couldn't sound more folk-like and non-symphonic. The accompaniment is utterly simple. The flute floats in as from the heavens. The music has been very low in pitch. And all of a sudden, this high flute comes in, and it couldn't sound simpler. It couldn't sound less like a symphonic theme. Yet, as you listen to this music in the development section, everything that Brahms would do with a theme happens to this. And that somehow effortless way that he manages to fuse this simple folk-like theme that sounds like he literally took it down in dictation from the Moravian village actually becomes a symphonic theme developed with all the sophistication of a Brahms symphony. And in a way, that's what makes this music so fantastic. It is seemingly, but only seemingly, simple.
Um, you know, it's interesting. Somehow, uh, finding our voice can show up in the simplest possible ways. You know, uh, nowadays we take it for granted that you can be a symphonic composer from anywhere. But when Dvorak began his career writing in Bohemia, Bohemia was Timbuktu, and Brahms was constantly trying to get him to move to the big city, thinking you could never be a successful composer unless you lived in Vienna, the big city. But Dvorak refused, and his desire to remain Czech shows up in the tiniest ways. His publisher, Simrock, who was a German publisher, who was Brahms's publisher, always wanted him to use the German form of his name, Anton. But he insisted on being Antonin. Now, they couldn't agree, and so the compromise, which is so witty, was A-N-T period. That was the way they got over it. But interestingly enough, he sold the Eighth Symphony to an English publisher, Novello, rather than Simrock. And it wasn't just because they were willing to pay more, but Novello was actually willing to put his bohemian form of his name, Antonin, on the cover, as opposed to Anton. So that debate over what your name is, is it Anton or Antonin, is a debate over what your voice is. Is it Czech? Is it German? And can I speak in my own voice and still have that equal, the magisterial productions of a Brahms or a Germanic composer. So A.N.T. was a substitute, but he wanted to be Antonin, both in name and musical voice. That brings us to the end of this week's TSO podcast. Don't forget, you can be in touch with the TSO at any time. Send an email to community at tso.ca or leave a note on our Facebook or Twitter pages. For more music and stories from the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, join us on Sunday night with the TSO. That's every Sunday at 8 p.m. on the new Classical FM. I'm Kathleen Kajioka. Join us next Monday for another episode of the TSO podcast. <laughs>